Hi everybody, I'm George and this is another episode of The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest at least. And today's guest is a pal of mine who traffics in B-grade movies, but grade A podcasting over at the Five Day Rentals show. Ooh. Please welcome Bones. How are you, pal? Doing well, doing well. Very excited to uh, to have you on the show. We have chopped it up about movies for a while now and uh, been meaning to get you in here. And we're finally, finally getting that chance. Much appreciated, man. You got a great product here. Uh, I, uh, <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I'm grateful that you uh taking a chance on having me on, man. I appreciate it. I love it. I think you've got a lot of really great insight into movies, you know, and, and I think that the, you know, we, we talked about Mad God when I was on your show. And I think that the fact that we didn't necessarily see 1000% eye to eye on it, uh, only helped to sharpen what I did like about the movie. And yeah. so I think that that's, you know, kind of important. So uh, the feelings mutual. It was a great episode. We were grateful to have you. And I will say that I think without your insight, I would have missed quite a bit on it so oh yeah. yeah well mutual admiration society then <laughs> yes why don't you tell us a little bit about your history with horror it's a little behind in all actuality so i grew up in a household of bonds and star treks hmm. horror was was not the first thing that we were watching and it wasn't until you know later in life when you you find that group of friends and you start trading stuff off it def it was definitely like a catch-up for me mm -hmm. we just recently talked on our show about Jason goes to hell and I will tell you and I told them it was probably I was well into my 30s before I had seen all of the Jasons well into my 30s before I saw all of the Freddies still trying to get through all of the child's plays horror to me requires some action requires some humor if it's just horror I'm not normally too excited to just feel <laughs> dread unnecessarily so I like a little bit of excitement but I'm coming around I mean there's you got your puppet masters you know, these weird little franchises that I'm starting to grow quite fond of. But Have you seen Extro? I have seen Extro, yes. What do you think about Extro? It's wild, number one. Yeah. I think we did it. We do this thing periodically. It's kind of what built the show. It was We called it Cinema Jihad, mm. which would be a sit-down marathon of four or five movies. Each person would pick one. And the last one we did, Kron brought Extro. Wow. We did that, that with right. <laughs> Deadly Friend. Deadly Friend. I forget what the Barbarian one that we watched. Some Italian. And and then I brought, as a loser, I brought Lone Wolf McQuaid. But uh, Extra was definitely the one that we, you know, we were all shaking our heads at. It's, it's a trip, man. That movie, I, I feel like the reason that I asked was just because, you know, you talk about these weird little franchises like Puppet Master and everything, and there really is something so satisfying about finding, like, a movie that just commits to being weird. Yes. <laughs> and that's one of them, baby. Absolutely. This is a, a big extra podcast. I'm always planting the seeds of trying to get people to watch it. <laughs> I do recall when we were watching it thinking, like, is that Army Man going to come alive? Like... <laughs> Like seeing that beforehand and thinking, oh, this is going to pay off. This is going mm -hmm. to be great. So, mm -hmm. oh yeah, and that's that is one of the the lower payoffs from people who are biding their time and wondering if that should check it out. One of the least wild things is army men coming to life and attacking people. <laughs> I am always a proponent of if you set out to do a specific thing and you succeed at that, even if it's not my speed, I will try to to commend you and give you props for that. Yeah. And one of the reasons I like this movie so much is that they set out to do a very specific thing, 
Mm-hmm. And I think they executed it perfectly. Absolutely. I, you kind of already touched on it a little bit, but do you have a favorite subgenre? I mean, you talked about it needing some action, maybe some comedy. Do you like prefer horror comedies, or is there a specific strain of horror that gets you more excited to check it out? I think I do prefer a horror comedy because I think they play so well together. The beats are so similar. Mm-hmm. You know, any good slasher movie requires those pauses, those breaths. So if you can find a way to work comedy into that, it sort of raises that bar. So it, it makes the peaks and valleys much further apart from each other, which I think is a little bit more of exciting of a ride. And I feel the same way with action. You know, if you get that payoff, the payoffs you get in Aliens aren't quite like the payoff in Alien. Right. <laughs> but if I'm being sort of a little truer to it, I would say Slasher is, is what I've come to kind of enjoy. Mm-hmm. You get a little too, like I'm already so heady and imaginative myself. I don't really need Robert Eggers getting in there and fucking around. (laughs) I think that that makes a ton of sense, especially because slashers in particular are so trope filled that it kind of lends itself to comedic beats in a way that some others don't because it's a little more ripe for subversion, I think. Yeah. But this week, we're talking about 2000's American Psycho, based on the 1991 novel by Brett Easton Ellis and adapted by Mary Harron, who directed and co-wrote it with Guinevere Turner. Brett Easton Ellis himself seems like quite a dumbass. During the research for this episode, I read a lot of insipid criticism of women directors from him, but I also did read some of the book. I haven't finished, but I am reading it. I got it from the library. And in my opinion, Mary and Guinevere did do him a pretty significant service by more sharply and clearly criticizing the cultural values of the time, creating an environment where the violence is more clearly ironic. I believe him when he's saying that it's supposed to be ironic in the book as well. Yeah. But also, I think that just the fact that it is more clear in the movie improves the thing as a whole. Yes, I have not read the book. I've actually just I decided to not seek it out. I loved the movie so much that. A lot of people that when you talk about it and they say, have you read the book? Oh, my God. They usually they go, oh, it's great or it's terrible. <laughs> it's it's like even worse. And yeah. I feel like I'm trusting the people that are saying it's much worse. <laughs> it a is a little bit more. It definitely so. is. Mary. I mean, they, they did a great job with it. Both. I think Mary and Guinevere did a great job in trimming the book into a, a palatable experience for more general audiences. But I think also just the influences that they were taking into it are really interesting. You know, she talks in the commentary Mary does about being influenced by Kubrick's style and really wanting the deep focus and sharp crystallized images that makes kind of a gloss to it. And also she said that she feels he's the master of black comedy, which is of course what they're going for in this. Yeah. Yeah. And the two rewatches I did this week, some of the framing really stood out especially a lot of the solo in his office stuff. Mm-hmm. And then you and I kind of behind the scenes discussed that I would watch the uh, writer's commentary. So I'll try to fill in here and there Hell yeah. any, anything that it yeah, will get to it. But she uses some language that today I'm like, oh, there's no way they would release this commentary, even <laughs> oh with the, God. you know, the little disclaimer beforehand. Uh-huh. So she's wow. definitely of a different time. Wow. Oh, my God. I, I can't I truly can't even imagine what she's not like. What are they even talking about? Uh, She talks a lot about the homophobia and she uses a particular word and she's not using it in a in a slight way. She's using it as imagining herself as the character saying this thing. But I think three or four times she just drops it so loose. Even my wife was like, did she just say what I thought? (laughs) It's like, yep. 
Wow. But, okay. Yeah, it's coming together now. Yes. The satire of yuppie culture and consumerism is focused through our main character, Patrick Bateman, played by Christian Bale in a world where nothing is real and nothing matters. It's a comedy of manners where everyone is willfully or accidentally ignorant, ignoring the open threats and confessions of crimes, thanks to his just fitting the look of success. Between sociopathic Patrick and the sick society that he's reflecting, he could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and not lose a single voter. Am I right, folks? Hmm. Are you hinting at some particular person that that might have been an influence? <laughs> I on can't possibly imagine what you're referring to. <laughs> I mean, in the book, he is a huge Trump fan. And that I mean, that does persist into the movie as well. There are a few references, but the admiration that he has for Trump in the book is much more palpable. And in a way, it makes perfect sense, because, of course, uh, even at the time, he was representative of the excess and sort of uh, a stand in for that greed that this movie is about. Yeah. And a and a power unearned. Yeah, which right. which is a big thing with with the characters throughout this. The feeling of nothing being real or lasting in this movie is a direct byproduct of the consumerism that's on display. And I was reading an interesting article about postmodernity from Simon Malpas, who remarked the transformation of social experience into an interchangeable flow of commodities in which everything is up for sale produces a loss of reality that is at once terrifying and euphoric. There is no longer any firm ground for experience as customs and traditions are continually cast aside with the advent of new fashionable lifestyle choices. We become no more than the sum total of our purchases, and the feeling associated with this is one of, quote, heightened intensity of experience, suffused with a mystical charge as it veers schizophrenically between intoxication and anxiety. Totally sums up, I think, the feeling of always needing to have the new thing and and the pressure to put on a, a a certain appearance for Instagram or whatever. Yeah. And despite the knowledge of previous cultures mm-hmm. that continue to do that. I mean, I love the aesthetic of the 80s. I, I mean, it's it's never been hotter, right? With, <laughs> right. with what's out there. It's a, but, it's a strange thing. Yes, exactly. But I'm also well aware of the damage that it did and... Even though this movie is set in the 80s, I don't I feel like you could watch it every 10 years and it would still be pertinent. Yes. I mean, if we were having this conversation four years ago, we would probably be talking about one particular person a hell of a lot more. So, (laughs) yes, I, I, I definitely agree with that. And the central metaphor is represented and reflected through Patrick himself, who is a fit and well dressed empty shell that could be replaced in a heartbeat as demonstrated by the constant misidentification of their social circle. It's Reed Robinson. No, it's Paul Allen. No, it's not Paul Allen. You know, he is he could be cast aside and purchased by the company at the drop of a hat as well. Yeah. I mean, this movie requires multiple watches, which sometimes could be a negative against the movie in certain ways. The first time I watched this, I was like, what the fuck is this? Mm -hmm. And it took me being high on a couch next to a buddy (laughs) watching this on DVD where it clicked like, oh, 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 shit, I get this. Okay, Mm -hmm. this is great. But the first time you watch this, the interchangeable names understandably would confuse the shit out of me. (laughs) It almost comes off like bad writing. Like, who is he supposed to be here? But I think it is always interesting when filmmaker is confident enough in the work to make something that does kind of demand repeat examination. On the Patreon, we recently talked about 
Synecdoche, New York with Michael Swain. Plug, plug. <laughs> and like it, that movie, I had to watch it twice, even if I wasn't doing it for the show, because at the end of watching it the first time, I was like, I know that I enjoyed the experience of watching it, but you kind of have to know where it ends in order to process what you're watching, I think. And seeing the degradation of Caden Cotard and Patrick Bateman makes watching that downward spiral that much more impactful. Yeah. And if you're so layered enough that even from the first scene, you can consciously choose to watch it from a different perspective, Mm -hmm. which is what I do every time I watch this movie, at least twice a year, I've rewatched it. And I will watch it as, all right, I'm just here to laugh and I'm laughing at all of the inappropriate stuff or I'm here to just let it wash over me or I'm really looking for, I think Bateman is the first person to misidentify somebody. He, like, as we'll get to it, but he's the one who incorrectly identifies Paul Allen at the other side of the room. So just watching that and seeing that is incredible. So, yeah. And in the writer's commentary, they wrote, she says that they set out to, make it clear cut. They didn't want it to be questionable whether this was real or not. Mm -hmm. And up until that, I had always depending on what rewatch I was on would determine whether or not I thought all this was in his head or if it was real. Mm -hmm. And she even says, you know, people will come up to me and say, I love American psycho. Me and my friends argue about it all the time. And she has to tell them like, it all really did happen, dude, (laughs) but they're grateful that it means people are still talking about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Some might say, hey, this movie was made in Canada by a Canadian. What gives? They're always punching down, dude. <laughs> there is some Canadianness under the surface of American Psycho, I think. There's a famous book from 1980 called The Imaginary Canadian that says people living in Canada sense their own lack of identity when compared to the U.S., And this kind of traps them in a binary where they feel compelled to construct an image of themselves in relation to us, the U.S. being being us there. And they can either embrace American cultural imperialism or reject it entirely. And so to this end, I read uh, this article, and it was a Canadian who wrote it, that positioned Patrick as representing the identity crisis fears that Canadians and specifically Torontonians have with his own self-awareness of it, dripping himself in the glamour of beauty products, expensive suits, fitness regimens, all of the American cultural and financial power that accentuates his missing self, that these are their fake crimes for a fake personality and representing this sort of lack of identity that he has and Canadians have, according to this article. As a lifelong American, let me tell any of your Canadian listeners, just (laughs) keep being Canadian. (laughs) Hell yeah. Now, when the book came out, it did cause a lot of controversy because despite Ellis maintaining that it was a satire of the men he met in 1980s Manhattan, segments of the book were removed from that context and the strong violence, especially towards women, caused uh, tumult, shall we say. Yeah. Mary Harron had just directed I Shot Andy Warhol and she was getting a lot of offers, but she felt that a lot of them were boring And so due to the risky feeling of American Psycho and the controversy that it had caused, she said, oh, I'm I'm interested in this. I'm going to go for this. And there were a ton of drafts of the movie already when she came on board, some even from Brett, some from just screenwriters that had been attached. 
But Mary said that if I'm going to do this, I want to adapt it myself with my writing partner in a way that turns up the comedy and made Patrick someone to deride, not admire, something that many of the actors who auditioned struggled with finding, she said. Yeah. I'm sure you came across the big name that was attached for a while. Oh, yeah. Well, there were a few even. I mean, there was Brad okay. Pitt, there was Johnny Depp, and then Leo, of course. I, that's probably who you were referring to. But. Oh, I knew about Depp interested, but I didn't know Pitt was in the conversation. Yeah. But And you came across, I'm sure, the, the Leo conversation that he had with one particular feminist. Oh, with Gloria? Yeah. <laughs> I, I did come across that. She was not a fan of the book, let's say. And um, I, I didn't write down exactly what she told him. So if you have that, feel free to uh, to say what oh, it was. Or, or oh, sorry for jumping it. ahead. But so Leo was was interested. I guess Gloria Steinem pulled him aside somewhere and said, your fans are 13-year-old girls. Mm-hmm. We don't need millions of girls going into a theater to watch this movie. And it's going to affect your image. And then the punchline to this is that Gloria Steinem is christian bale's stepmother-in-law so (laughs) it's really funny i also think that it's mary did respond to this quote and she was like 13 year olds couldn't even get in to see it (laughs) it's a rated r movie (laughs) can you imagine just a swarm of 13 year olds running through lobbies just like they can't stop they can't stop us all girls (laughs) that's right it's like the storm area 51 but for for young ladies just bony elbows just knocking over ushers and (laughs) So the studio kept sending her these shallow notes that were suggesting that she, like, delve into Patrick's background, his family life, his psychology. And she was like, I was pissed about that because she didn't want it to be humanizing. The whole point is that he is this other that he feels completely empty. And one actor who definitely didn't think there was anything admirable about Patrick was our guy, Christian Bale. Fantastic in this movie. But there's a funny quote from him because he apparently had to be kind of roped into even just reading the script. And he said, I had no idea what to expect. I had not read the book at the time. I had heard of the controversy, people calling it for it to be banned, and I wasn't expecting what I read. And as I read it, I was exploding with laughter. And I didn't know if that was Mary's intent. So I spoke with her on the phone and I said, I've just got to get this over with because it might end our conversation and completely insult you. But I find this to be one of the most ridiculous and hilarious scripts. And she went, bingo, that's it. Please fly out to meet me. Hell yeah. He is, without a doubt, my favorite actor. Really? I think, yes. High praise, high praise. He's, yes. I mean, he is incredible, and he truly transforms himself in a way that is uh, pretty fearless, in yeah, a way. Gonna, that feels I, very gonna catch up to say, with him. But. <laughs> no, it really is. I mean, they talk a lot about like his transformation. I'm sure that's what you'll get into, but like not not using his his Welsh accent on set and you know screwing people up whenever mm-hmm. at like I guess he started to speak naturally at the rap party and everybody <laughs> was thinking like oh he's just in character for his next movie but <laughs> Mary did love his take on the character and she said when I offered him the part he said he had all these messages on his answering machine telling him that this was career suicide and that just made him more excited that's sort of how I reacted to and I think that there is sort of an interesting edge to this movie you know it's not 
for every single person. I don't think that everybody is going to like this movie, no matter how much you're like, no, look, it is doing this on purpose. It is executing what it's trying to do. Some people are just going to bristle at it, I think. And I think that that being willing to to take that risk is is a, a thing to admire in Mary and Christian here. Are there any actors doing that now? I mean, surely there's, I mean, there's a handful, but I don't think anybody of that caliber is like, oh yeah, let me do this because it's risky. Right. I mean, with just the constant social media of everybody, I mean, The Rock and Ryan Reynolds are prime examples of these. I might I might say Daniel Radcliffe, like he took his Potter money and he's just kind of doing his stuff. That's that's fair. But do you think he would do that if he didn't have that Potter money? Like, is he almost trying to, you know, is Pattinson doing the same thing? Kind mm. of like, I got to break One this for me, off of me. 20 for you. Yes. <laughs> Great question. I don't. I don't. I don't know if I know the answer to that. It's kind of. I. Who who can say what's going on inside their head? But yeah, it's certainly uh, this. This does feel like something that Christian does more persistently in a way that uh, has been going on for a very long time. He's had a yeah. storied career with a ton of incredible performances. You know, it's not like he's a, a one trick pony either. They're very varied roles. Yeah. The one thing that she did suggest to Christian was that since he was slim and Bateman was a frequent exerciser, that he start going to the gym. And she said within two weeks, he was completely transformed. He was ripped as hell. He did the full Kumail. There are a lot of supposed influences on this look and performance, including, as many people know, a Tom Cruise interview with David Letterman that weirded Christian out a lot, but less frequently talked about and also interesting to me. Is that he said Nick Cage's performance in Vampire's Kiss definitely influenced this a lot, and that movie is so good, but has unfortunately been reduced to meme status through the same removal of context that American Psycho went through. And I think that they are a really fascinating comparison. They would make an incredible double feature. Yeah, they have the same kind of downward spiral of some yuppie asshole. <laughs> Like, it's a really fantastic Nick Cage performance. And again, similarly fearless in, like, I mean, he always throws himself into the roles. But it, this is one where it's, it feels like a successful utilization of his strengths and and the uh, unhinged nature of his acting definitely in, uh, improves that movie. Yeah. And I don't think you would get that from the three other people on that list. Right. Maybe Depp, but... At that early in the career, I don't think you'd get that from Leo or, or Brad Pitt. No, definitely not. Lionsgate did agree to produce this with a $10 million budget and a starting date of August 98, but they weren't really on board for Bale, who was more of an unknown at the time, and they were the ones who wanted Leo. And he was hot off Titanic, and they even offered a lot more money to get him in the role, although it would have gone directly to him and not actually improved the budget at all. <laughs> Harren wasn't into this, like I said. She basically viewed it as stunt casting, and and as I mentioned, said his young fan base wouldn't even be able to get in to see the movie, so what would be the point of catering to them? Yeah. So you can imagine her surprise when at the May 98 Cannes Film Festival, just a few short months before the movie was going to shoot, Lionsgate announces Leonardo DiCaprio has been brought on board. <laughs> huh. How about that? The producers did want her to stay, but she was like, this was extremely fucked up, and I want bail, so she was fired. And DiCaprio wanted a bigger name director anyway, so Oliver Stone was brought on board. They started taking it in the studio direction, becoming more akin to, like, Portrait of Dorian Gray-style dandy pressing back against society through violence, yeah, as opposed to the satire that we got. 
Mary said he was probably the single worst person to do it. (laughs) She said, I like Stone's stuff, but the social satire is not his forte, and he's not known for his well-rounded three-dimensional female characters. She's got a point. Yeah. Yeah, I I don't see I don't see them not trying to make him likable. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and that's that goes to Bale's just character. Like he just doesn't give a shit. Mm-hmm. Like he wants to do what's right for that. So I thought she quit. I didn't know it was that she was fired. So this is interesting. I, I mean, I guess maybe it was a poor choice of words. It was kind of like a mutual parting of ways in that they were like, well, we need a director, and if you're not going to do it without Christian, we just paid yeah. a ton of money to Leonardo DiCaprio. So they agreed to part ways. We'll say they made her fire herself. Right. <laughs> We, su- we suggest you quit. And eventually, Leonardo DiCaprio did bail for Boyle's Beach with Stone dropping shortly thereafter. So they sheepishly returned to Mary Harron and Christian Bale, although the budget was down to between six and seven million dollars now. And Bale had been so confident things would shake out this way that he was turning down other roles for nine months and continued preparing. And he also literally called a few other contenders like Ewan McGregor and Ed Norton to threaten them away from the role. And he said, this is a quote from him. He said, don't touch, step away. Or if you're not going to step away, understand what you're up against. <laughs> okay, Christian. I mean, we know what it sounds like when he yells at somebody. Oh, so. good. Good for you. You're supposed to be a fucking professional, man. We're fucking done professionally, man. <laughs> when asked about why these people who actually been attached over the years tended to be teen idol types your leos your brad pitts your johnny depps ellis said it's the kind of role that an actor wants you have to be very pretty to play the role and leading men are often very pretty but not allowed to show a lot of range you're either put into this action movie role or the romantic lead role and there are not a lot of projects offered to them that can invert that or twist it up a little bit i think it was probably very appealing for an actor of a certain age to play crazy like that and also look really nice. I don't know. It's the best of both worlds. I think that makes sense to me. Yeah. And it took Brad Pitt like 15 years to really get to that. Right. Like he should, he should have been a character actor the whole time from the, yeah, the whole time. Like, <laughs> yeah, he's great. I love Brad Pitt. What, a, what an actor. Yeah. And that's not to say I don't no, appreciate I, I, those guys. And I don't think that you are either, but right. in, if there's ever a world where I didn't get Christian Bale, as uh, Patrick Bateman, I, I don't think that's a world I'd want to live in. Yeah, it is funny. I mean, just thinking about how it like the idea of coming to it because it's a character who gets to be pretty and everything versus there was a quote in the commentary where Mary was talking about how Christian was the only one who understood how dorky the character is and how he couldn't make it dorky enough. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it just feels like a pretty severe disconnect between how a lot of, or at least how I imagine these actors would come to it based on their previous work versus Christian Bale's. Guinevere said that a lot too, in a, I think almost in a damning way of anybody that was trying to relate to Patrick. Mm-hmm. Like he's a fucking dork. Like, yeah. why would you, this is a dorky thing. This sucks. Yeah. And we're, we're sort of at peak misunderstanding of, or mislabeling of heroes. Mm-hmm. You know, with the the Joker memes and your Don Drapers, your Walter Whites, where right. people are, oh, that's totally me and totally missing the point. Yeah. I think right. this is, this might be the worst of all of them in a way. <laughs> it is wild to see it. all the 
people who are like, oh, I'm going to rock this style still and, and like emulate this version of success. And it's so clearly like a caricature of that. It's mm-hmm. like clearly mocking it. It's so obvious to me. And, and it really is. It feels shocking when someone misses that. Honestly, not. I mean, look, if that's you, I don't know what to say. Audience member, what are you doing? <laughs> They had a tough time filming the movie because they straight up couldn't get filming locations thanks to the controversy of the book, especially in Toronto, where Paul Bernardo had reportedly loved the books during his attacks there. This had also applied to using brands and licensing music as well. But it is important to note this claim is false since Bernardo's attacks began in 1987, several years before the book was published, and that since Bernardo was uh, captured, there is uh, new information that suggests that he was nearly illiterate. And so the copy of American Psycho in his house probably didn't belong to him, but rather his wife. So let's just get ahead of that. <laughs> yeah. That's some Q-level sort of rewriting of history. Yeah. And by the time the movie actually came out, the world was a buzz. Tickets at its debut at Sundance were being scalped for up to $200. And there was some really strange marketing that happened with this movie as well. First was emails from Patrick Bateman to his therapist that were approved by Ellis and followed Patrick after the movie, which seems wild. There was also an online stock market game called Make a Killing with American Psycho. <laughs> okay. You got to sell your movie somehow. I mean, <laughs> I, I get it. I get it. It did come out and polarize audiences, as you can imagine, but it was a success, making $34 million worldwide. Although I did think it was interesting that it made more money internationally than it did here in the U.S. Hmm. Do you know what the Canadians spent on it? I didn't. I didn't uh, look that. That'd be interesting. No. Yeah, that would be interesting. I'm. I am curious. Uh, do you think it's just like people uh, are like, yeah, that's what Americans are like. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and that's why they like to come see it so much. Yeah, and I'm. I'm maybe you know, if you just see American something on a poster, mm. you might think, oh, this must be the newest American action movie, or mm. could be. I don't know. Or they just like fucking crazy white guys killing people, I guess. Could be. Maybe they just uh, appreciated the movie. (laughs) (laughs) Let's get into the movie itself. I'm not sure that I've seen this Lionsgate film production card at the beginning before, and it's pretty sick. Like the lion, and it kind of looks like the Orion one. Yeah. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. It was cool. The lion, fucking duh. (laughs) The lion at the gate? Yeah. yeah. But the current one, it's got, I think, the gears. Yeah, like all the locking mechanisms and shit that fall into place. It's cool. I always think it's like the movie. I always (laughs) think it's like the start of the movie. (laughs) And then I'm like, oh shit, no, it's just Lionsgate. (laughs) Um, And so the opening credits are dripping with what you assume is blood. And they're literally from the beginning telling you that this could be real or not, especially when the knife being raised threateningly is subverted with a chop into meat. And it turns out that this is a fancy meal being plated, a rare roasted partridge breast in a, ra- a raspberry coulis with a sorrel timbale. Herbed French fries. <laughs> mm, I love a herbed French fry. <laughs> <laughs> Mary said the opening credits were conceived late in the editing process, but that it kind of represents the whole thing and that it seems one thing, but it's another. It's horror and comedy. And then she also mentioned that the food on the menu starts out as actually possible exotic foods, but that as they go to more and more restaurants and the movie continues, that the food itself becomes more surreal, which I thought is also interesting. Yeah. And the food itself on the plates is kind of symbolic as well, you know, in terms of being the sort of extremely surface level uh, flash, but there's not much to actually eat there type of dishes. Mm -hmm. 
$200 a plate for nothing. Right. It's more the reservation that's important, less the meal. Right. Being seen and, yep. and people knowing you went. And we see a bunch of business guys, including our man Patrick and Justin Thoreau as Tim Bryce, are arguing about the restaurant and who else is here. And it's funny that at the beginning, Patrick seems to be the most well-adjusted one here just because he's like, hey, maybe cool it with the anti-Semitic stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and this rewatch, Lucas was the one of the guys I was watching. And in the business card scene, I'll, I'll add a little bit to that. But yeah, he is the one making the... He's getting, I think, a lot of Jewish things incorrect yeah right so go he was spinning a a, a menorah <laughs> yeah like, oh it's a dreidel patrick says like you spin a dreidel it's like okay this guy latkes are fried potato pancakes so he did get okay. that right so <laughs> at the end it's only 570 dollars though pretty reasonable talking about reasonable yeah. <laughs> yeah and this is yeah in that scene they're talking about you know this is why do we even come here this is a chick's restaurant nobody's here and they're saying, is that Paul Allen? And Bateman says, no, Paul Allen's on the other side of the room. Mm. And if you've seen this a ton of times, you know, Paul Allen is Jared Leto, and that is not Paul Allen. So right. it's the first of those uh, misidentifications. Yeah, and that's played into as well because they all have the same credit card. So that plays into it. And then she, Mary said that she really wanted to show also that he's just one of many that – it could have been any one of these guys that uh, mm -hmm. they are his doppelgangers. Basically they head to a dingy looking club. I do think it's interesting that they slum it in this like faux grit since the sheen of their reality is so lifeless. Well, those places have better bathrooms to do Coke in. Right. <laughs> yeah. And they go to like a, some brutalist restaurants later and everything. And there is kind of this, uh, weird embrace of, the grungy nature of like being in a, a, dis, a different social class than these people are actually in. Yeah. Yeah. It's like they're, it's the one thing that keeps them from being their fathers. Right. In a way that they go do this. Yeah. We get our first glimpse at Patrick's other side, though, here when he tries to pay for his drinks with tickets and he gets told by the bartender, which is played by the director's sister. Yep. That they don't do that anymore. <laughs> and $25 in 2000 for two drinks seems truly wild. Yes. <laughs> and, to be, and not to start on the, hey, to be fair to Patrick, she is quite rude about it. Like, he does <laughs> come don't do up that, with a smile. <laughs> yeah. These aren't good anymore. This is a cash bar. She yells at him. It's like, all right. <laughs> the next morning, the movie kind of starts proper with the hermetically sealed antiseptic white apartment. They've got stainless steel kitchen. It looks like a morgue, basically. And Patrick begins his beauty regimen. And there's a lot of mirror time. It's a movie and a world obsessed with the surface and how things reflect. You know, even when it's just the Les Mis poster above his toilet, he's staring at himself. He's admiring himself. Yeah. And we, as spectators, share in what is, for him, autoeroticism. For us, we're like, wow, Christian Bale's hot. And this puts us in the shoes of the American psycho world, where we're willing to accept the movie's ending that diverges in explicitness about clemency for Patrick. And looking at him and being able to go like, oh, well, a handsome guy like this, he couldn't have done it. It's just a vivid imagination. And that 
clemency and sort of willingness to just be like, maybe it wasn't really happening, isn't as clear in the book in a, in a way that does, you know, I mean, it could go either way on how you feel about that. And this emphasis on the mirror image of himself also plays with some Jacques Lacan mirror stage psychology, where he seems to kind of view the mirror image of himself as a real person, thanks to his disconnect. And it becomes very obvious that a person already having errors in judgment about reality could become convinced that he'd committed crimes that are just fantasies, you know, right. especially later when we see him pointing at himself in the mirror. Like, he's like, yeah, you're fucking killing it, dude. It's like, maybe it looks like he's talking to that guy. <laughs> yes. I think it also adds a little bit more into the impact of him, especially later on when he's misidentified. But to his image is so clear. Mm-hmm. what he has worked so hard and what he lays out for you in this narration, this is so important for him to stand out. And then later when he's misidentified as Halberstram, he has to like, yeah, he's also a very good looking guy, but I, the one thing I have is a slightly better haircut. <laughs> like it's, it's so, like you said, it's just so important to, to everything around him. Absolutely. And I think we're also kind of put on his side in a way, thanks to his self-awareness about his emptiness. You know, he says there is an idea of a Patrick Bateman, some kind of abstraction, but there is no real me, only an entity, something illusory. And though I can hide my cold gaze and you can shake my hand and feel flesh gripping yours, and maybe even since our lifestyles are probably comparable, I simply am not there. Incredible monologue. It really does kind of succinctly sum up what's going to be going on here and Mary in particular said that she feels like this is the crucial the crucial scene of the movie where he's pulling off one mask to reveal another. Yeah. Very funny when he walks stone-faced in listening to Walking on Sunshine. Okay, so the 80s-ness of it, those overhead New York shots and that cue of Walking on Sunshine makes this feel like a Michael Keaton corporate <laughs> comedy. <laughs> like it's such a great it just it's probably what 15 seconds before he he comes in and walks but if you see that without knowing what this movie is you think that this is just oh stereotypical like a michael j fox trying to make it and the the music selection throughout this thing is incredible now and i'm sure you will will touch on that but yeah well i she mentioned in the commentary that they had to pay so much money for the licensed music in this movie, because partially because it's a controversial movie, partially yep. because it's very famous music that's in it. And she said that part of the challenge was that because it was written into the movie in a way that they were kind of necessary to get those specific songs. Right. It's my understanding that I don't know if it's necessarily chapters, but a lot of those reviews that he does are in the book. And one of you talked about that those are keys into his brain like whenever he's not obsessing over the bloodlust in his downtime he is he fancies himself almost as a a music reviewer Mm -hmm. and he's writing these long monologues in his head and so anytime he can you know push them out into conversation he will the way that he regurgitates these things it doesn't sound like a real person talking like it sounds like he is just saying things that he read yeah. In a magazine when it comes to the food menu, when he's like, the Times called it. Fun, playful little dish. Yeah. It's like, oh, <laughs> yeah. Okay, guy. But mm-hmm. that definitely comes across in the music reviews as well, where he's like, oh, it really all comes together when they abandon their corporate past or whatever the fuck he says. Like, yeah. He also gets greeted as Hamilton here, another mistaken identity as he walks in. 
Mm-hmm. And he interacts with his secretary, Jean, played by Chloe Sevigny. Sevigny? I can never pronounce her name. She's great, though. And I think that she's a really interesting character in this movie because her performance feels so natural in an otherwise very stylized movie. Yeah, Guinevere talked about how she never liked this casting. Really? She wanted somebody even more plain, like mm-hmm. less attractive. She thought that Chloe was was too attractive and would have been an immediate draw for Bateman. Mm-hmm. But I think she plays it really well. I do. I also think that it, it's aided because he is constantly critiquing her the way that she dresses and everything. And it feels like, well, that's the strike that would make him not be interested or whatever. She can't meet his criteria in a way that someone like Evelyn might. Yeah. And he does use her as a fantasy object, though, just like he does with a lot of other people. He does critique her outfits. He tells her what to wear next time before starting a hard day of watching Jeopardy with his feet up. (laughs) Two things about this. First, Mary talked about how this isn't necessarily supposed to be reflective of what she thinks bankers do, but that he in particular doesn't know what to do with himself once he doesn't have to perform for anybody, that he's just completely disconnected from his environment and that showing him do work would interfere with the hallucinatory feeling of the movie, which I absolutely agree with. Yeah. I also do think it's interesting that the self-absorption and reduction of others to objects is interesting because it's something that Patrick does, and it's clearly portrayed as negative, but you can also see it kind of uh, as a comment on the way the 80s self-absorption happened in particular because it is also reflected back at Patrick, and he seems to hate it. As we meet her in the next scene... It's implied that Bateman resents his fiance Evelyn, who is played by Reese Witherspoon, because she sees him as a prop in her fantasies of a happy life, instead of, instead of letting him listen to the new Robert Palmer tape. Mm-hmm. Um, and then even again later, when his murder attempt is taken as a homoerotic come on, the potential victim thinks his fantasies are coming true as well. And he says, you can't imagine how long I've wanted this. And Patrick is extremely upset. It definitely... There's certainly feels like a large component of homophobia to his character there, but also there's a sort of visceral rejection of being someone else's fantasy object as being seen as a thing to be used. That since he is so solipsistic and really views his self as the only thing that everyone else is just living in his fantasy, it's totally antithetical to his being to have that done to him as well because it creates an, an interiority for the other people. Yeah, and an inferiority, especially when you get to, and you see that in the business card scene coming up. Mm-hmm. But for them to think anything but him being incredible right, pisses him off. Yeah. Also, on the note of him not doing anything, it's hysterical, but <laughs> I absolutely believe it because in the scene with his fiance, she says, your dad practically owns the company. Right. So I... I guarantee you there's nepotist. Yes. A thousand guys on wall street doing the same exact thing. I mean, her itinerary for him for the day is about squash and lunches. It's there's no work meetings. (laughs) And he kind of bristles at this. He doesn't seem to like the cracks in his own fantasy that he built this life through hard work, like his beauty routine. You know, he says, I just want to fit in. Like yeah. that's that is his goal. Oh, forgive me. It's it's box that he does. He boxes with somebody. That's Squash right. comes up later. After work, I'll box. <laughs> yes. The dinner scene here is great. It's another mirror in the menu. And Tim says the community, the commercialization of Soho is less important than the Sikhs killing a ton of Israelis in Sri Lanka. But Bateman then ups the stakes again 
And he says that that's less important than ending apartheid, the nuclear arms race, world hunger and terrorism, and that food and shelter for the homeless and promoting civil rights are also more important. Societal concern and less materialism. Again, stuff that he's probably read or Evelyn's talked about. It comes out. He plays it so great. It's just so clean. Mm-hmm. Like there's no heart to it. And then the three people around him, I think uh, it's Lewis that says, Patrick, how thought provoking. Yes, like he's he, he, equally as, as shallow. He's very impressed. And, yes. and also, as we'll see, spoiler alert, has a big old crush on Patrick. So he is yep. wrapped up in the fantasy of what Patrick is. And he has the view of him as this thoughtful guy. So even if it doesn't sound quite right to us, he's going to look past that. And if at this part you haven't figured out that it is meant to be funny, you're not paying attention because <laughs> the narration of by the time we reach a spas, I'm on the verge of tears because I'm sure we won't have a good table, but we do. And relief <laughs> washes over me in an awesome wave. Like it's perfect. I obviously perfect. was not paying attention the first time I watched this as a <laughs> dumb 17 year old. <laughs> I also, I do want to call out Justin Thoreau, who is really, really funny in this movie. Yes. He really is kind of hitting that, like, Mulholland Drive feeling for me. (laughs) And he, like, laughs in his drink as Patrick is going off there in a way that is so funny to me. Mm -hmm. This is also the reveal of him admitting that he's sure Evelyn is having an affair with him Mm -hmm. and that she's he's pretty indifferent as to whether or not she knows he's having an affair with her friend. Right. And he also doesn't care that they're having an affair. Yeah. Well, he's the only other interesting person he knows. Right. (laughs) Right. And he's just... Like, slightly more cognizant of Patrick's bullshit, and that makes him, like, cool to him. (laughs) These dinner scenes do feel purposefully like the discreet charms of the bourgeoisie. Very fun movie, and, of course, it feels like they are never actually getting to eat. They're always just ordering and, and talking about paying. I also love the scene that follows this, where he's freaking out in the dry cleaners. First of all, the comically huge blood stain is really funny to me. But then also how he has to immediately put on his persona when someone interested in Patrick stops by, someone that he views as an equal or at least someone that he might need down the road. Who is incredibly into him. Oh, yeah. And if you watch it from, oh, shit, I have now realized that she's super into me and I got to get out of here. It's a great switch. But Mm -hmm. I don't think that was blood. He says it's Cran Apple. Oh, shit. That's right. I messed up. It might have also been the Raspberry Coolie, a little bit of both. Yeah. This was the first scene that they shot. How about that? What a one to come in on. In the writer's commentary, I think she says something about them trying to write it in a way that when, I forget the character's name, when she comes in and she says, Veronica, like she says, what are those? That she's more interested in the sheets, not the bloodstain on the sheets. Mm, Interesting. And I thought, okay, that's an interesting take. Like she's so completely indifferent to that it could be juice or blood. She yeah. was more concerned about, like, where did you get those? Yeah. Christ, I'll call you. <laughs> Next Saturday? Sure. Oh, sorry. Les Mis matinee. Yep. <laughs> it's incredible when he tries to make a reservation at Dorsha for the night and gets laughed at. Really, really funny to me. While watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre? No, right? this or, is, no, the, this is the, the porno. Porn. This is the That's porn. Right. That's right. He has it on in the background casually while he's on the phone with his lover, Courtney, who's played by Samantha Mathis. She is dating Lewis Carruthers, and he's reading the back of Inside Lydia's Ass. <laughs> we got to set up the videotapes, though. So, I oh, mean, of course, Mary said that he has no within. So everything has to be modeled from outside. 
And that's why movies are so important to him. He watches porn to learn how to fuck. He watches Texas Chainsaw to learn how to kill. That he has, he can't conjure anything from within himself. The same thing with those reviews of music and food and everything. Yeah. We get this cool shot of them in the cab. I like it a lot where Courtney is in view, but Patrick is obscured by the glass. She is taking so many antidepressants that she's basically catatonic. But Patrick thinks that she's the best looking person he knows. So appearances demand it. It's so funny when she's like, is this Dorsha? And the camera cuts to the menu that clearly says Barcadia. And he just goes, yes, dear. (laughs) There's also a Donald Trump reference there, too, right? Doesn't he say is that Donald Trump's limo while she's going on about her day? Yeah, right. And then you get several Ivanka Trump pulls. That's right. Yeah. This is also our first glimpse at Patrick's cultural criticism where he's reiterating the opinion about the menu uh, or the work of art or wherever that he read elsewhere. But he does want people to appreciate his his keen critical ear. It's a move born from his desperation at his own shallowness and in- inability to connect with anything or anyone. You know, the fact that he is self-aware about this makes it a little more tragic as well that he like he said just wants to fit in and that he is trying pretty desperately to do that and it just doesn't work for him ever yeah because as soon as she passes back out again grateful that he's ordering for her and he plays it great and it's shot great he sort of leans back and kind of turns and just is he's relaxed now Mm -hmm. like i'm at the place she's convinced i got out my little monologue i'm good to go there we go jared leto Shows up the next day, Paul Allen, to be another business dickhead. <laughs> and he confuses Patrick for Marcus, but he himself also looks exactly like Patrick. Yep. And then this is the famous business card scene. It is a true delight. He looks fucking shell-shocked <laughs> at these alternate cards, and they all look exactly the same. <laughs> there, I watched a, a great video not too long ago on... Like my YouTube feed that popped up is a guy who does something with calligraphy or business cards and he dissects and talks about like how all of the shit is made up. None of this is real. And I thought like, dude, you're ruining this for me. Like (laughs) just it's it's meant to be funny. Yeah. And and it is. And the one interesting thing that I also learned from the commentary here is that the Paul Allen business card font is the title font for the movie because it's the alpha male font. Oh, how about that? That's a good insight. Josh Lucas in this scene does an incredible look when Van Patten puts out his to counter. Bryce says, how to nim it like you get so tasteful. Bateman (laughs) says, I can't believe Bryce prefers Van Patten's card to mine. Bryce pulls out his. That's when the real sweating kicks in. And then Guinevere said that Bale can sweat on command. Yeah, crazy. Robo actor, yes. he calls him. <laughs> and then when he says, let's see Paul Allen's card and can barely get it out, <laughs> Lucas is sitting on the table smoking. He lets out this, like, fuck. Like, this, I, I don't want to look, like, this has been too embarrassing to watch. <laughs> and now if you're going to drop the Paul Allen thing, I know it's going to be great. Uh-huh. It's a great little cutaway. And then later when Lewis shows his card, it m- sort of mirrors that, like, exhaustion that Lucas has. Yeah. So as much as they're all very similar, I feel like there's a few acting choices that stand out that I love to see on every rewatch. Hell yeah. And he can't take it anymore. This is the last straw. And so that night he walks down an alley where he confronts a homeless gentleman. There's some real Jekyll and Hyde shit with the fog and whatnot. And it's definitely rude as fuck, but I did laugh at his little joke about 
why did he get fired? Insider trading. Just joking. <laughs> it's like, I mean, it's so reflective of Patrick's worldview that he can't even conceive of someone at his level where you might get busted for something like that would ever be in a position to have lost so much. You know, you might get a slap on the wrist when you're playing with millions, baby. Yeah. And he even says, he explicitly says, I don't have anything in common with you. And then he stabs him a bunch and stops his dog. Any uh, fondness for Patrick out the window. Gone. And it's such a bummer, too. And, like, I'm so grateful that you said that you laughed at one part of it because it's so bad. But every time he says, you reek of shit, <laughs> it, the the line read is so funny. Yeah. and But you pay the price once he sets that briefcase down. I mean, a lot of the the violence is really ultimately implied in this. Thank God they uh, they only showed what they did, but the squeaks on the dog are just oh. so effective. Always brutal. I yeah. always worry about the cat too, even though I've seen it a couple of times. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Mary said that part of this is just that he tries to talk to him like he would one of his stockbroker buddies, and that he just can't cross the barrier of of class there of of social status. He's also not even really listening to what the guy says. He's right. not even letting the guy finish. Like, the guy is just looking for any sort of assistance, you know? I'm so cold. I'm so hungry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know that actor. I want to say from The Mask. Jim wow. Carrey's The Mask. I wow. think he's like, is Dorian the bad guy? The guy who plays Zed from Pulp Fiction. This is so weird. This is my weird casting connection brain. Here we go. I Let's think he's it. like... The computer guy for the bad oh my guy God, in the mask he is holy shit! Wow, you really just blew my mind here. Okay, the mask has been coming up a lot on the show lately. <laughs> I don't know why. Maybe it's the best horror movie ever made. Who knows? Somebody pick it. Even after all of his outbursts, I, this is still kind of like shocking coldness from Patrick. The stomping of the dog, in particular, you know that he's like he goes back. He double dips on this. Hmm. And he reveals that his only emotions are greed and disgust, and he's on the verge of frenzy, that the mask of sanity is about to slip. Sounds like Wall Street, all right? All while he is getting the, the manicure and the facial here, right? Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Mr. Bateman, your skin is so beautiful and smooth and fine. So soft. Yeah. So smooth. Yeah. He lures Paul Allen to dinner. I really, you know, it, it kind of kills me to say this, but every now and then... I'll just really like love I a know. Jared Leto performance. I know. Yeah. <laughs> like House of Gucci. I fucking loved him in it. It's so funny. It. It's so funny. And I genuinely I think that Ridley Scott knows that it's funny. I think that there is a lot of intentional humor in that movie. Everyone kind of made it seem like it was going to be bad by accident, but I think that there is a lot of purposeful drama to it that it is sort of uh, melodramatic in a way yeah and he's great he's a big part of that this is before he was a little up his own ass too right mm -hmm. i mean we're what he's so he's just at a fight club that's right just got the shit kicked out of him in that yeah he pays a price he does panic room around this time too right that's yep okay who knows who knows he was an, maybe he's an actor for a reason folks yeah. sometimes he brings it unfortunately <laughs> <laughs> and there is a great dynamic between them as paul is diminishing the restaurant and patrick for picking it again patrick confesses his crimes openly only for paul to shift the conversation and reveal his lack of attention just like everybody else completely self-absorbed this is one of so i quote this movie probably once a day 
and I live with a woman who watches movies because they're fun, not because <laughs> she has no other, you know, friends or outlets or whatever. <laughs> so this is, I mean, next to like Wes Anderson movies, this movie is just so infinitely quotable. Not if you want to keep your spleen is something that I say once a week to very unsuspecting people. <laughs> How do they react to that? I, I mean, most people ignore what I say. Oh, I, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Uh-oh. They learn. Yeah. It's, it's just like everyone yeah. ignores Patrick in this. Yeah. I'm hey, <laughs> taking the fifth. Um she, Yeah, so this was the first time she watched it with me, I think front to back. She happened to be she was working while I watched the commentary and she definitely was reacting like, "Oh, that's where this is from." Mm. Oh, that's where this is from. <laughs> that's really funny. Patrick gets Paul drunk as a skunk and brings him home to kill him. There is, of course, some uh, homoeroticism in that as well, that he gets this guy drunk and then brings him home. And this is a very famous scene, and it is incredible. It's rightfully famous. And the Huey Lewis and the news discussion includes the pleasures of conformity and the importance of trends, which, of course, is uh, poignant in this movie. And it does lead to this bloody massacre. But, of course, what makes this interesting is not just that it's like a fun scene where he's getting to sort of have this gleeful kill, but... It is that it's gleeful, that he is happy. This is the first time that he's really shown any pleasure in this movie. Yeah. The moonwalk, I guess they had to sell Brett on. <laughs> he was not a fan. <laughs> also, the fact that you see the medication say Patrick Bateman on it is also another mindfuck thing. So Definitely. There's definitely things in the scene to, to watch for. Especially uh, considering how disdainful he is of the other woman who is taking medication, like antidepressants yeah. and stuff. Bale swung at a plexiglass-coated camera as the crew squirted fake blood at his face, and the blood obviously only covers half of Bale's face. That was an accident, but Heron said that she found it to be a perfect metaphor for the Jekyll and Hyde aspect of Bateman, pristine yeah. on the outside, bloody and psychotic on the inside. You talked about the homophobia, and Guinevere talks a lot about it, and then even in this scene, like the added tag of, do you have a little dog or something? A little chow? Mm-hmm. Like, that's meant to be... Very dismissive. Yeah. And he drags the corpse out to a cab and he runs into Lewis. <laughs> Maybe my favorite line when Lewis goes, is that you, Patrick? And Patrick goes, no, Lewis, it's not me. <laughs> You're mistaken. <laughs> First of all, he's trying to lean into the identity mishaps, but also to be like, I'm responding to you and saying me is like just so the sloppiest possible mm-hmm. execution of trying to get away with that. <laughs> But he uses it later to uh, greater effect. He had to get it out of the way here first. Get the training mm-hmm. wheels off. I always loved the, where did you get that overnight bag? And he <laughs> has to answer. <laughs> Jean-Paul Gaultier. Like he. <laughs> <laughs> it's really fantastic. Yeah. Um, and it, of course, looks like he's inspecting the bag to be like, oh, my God, is that a body in there? And then, no, of course not. He's just checking. He's interested in the status of it, baby. And, you know, of course, this leans into through the whole movie. We see as long as Patrick follows societal rules about what to wear and buy and who to be seen with, no one will look any closer. But you can also see how that might be a hollow and maddening life. Absolutely. He's still freaking out that Paul has a more expensive apartment than he does, but he gathers the belongings in a suitcase and leaves a message that says Paul got called away to London. This, like, terrible impression of Paul is so funny to me. Yeah. He's got, like, his little, like, tremolo in his voice because he's nervous about getting away with it. Like, it's, again, very sloppy execution of this plan. Yep. 
Hey, everybody. I got called off to London for a few days. <laughs> Meredith, I'll call you. Hasta la vista, baby. Which I think <laughs> that was, I don't know if that was in the book or not, but Guinevere talked about like hasta la vista, baby. They debated on whether, like they were like, it's almost so lame that he has to do it. That's him, man, though. He has yeah. to reflect the movies. That's all yeah. he can do. You talk about his intelligence in the commentary. She added some insight because you always wonder that with just a little bit more planning, <laughs> you could get away with literal murder mm-hmm. and just how dumb he is, especially with Kimball. And she adds a little bit of insight to like, even though he went to Harvard and Harvard Business School and he has this job, he is not smart. Mm-hmm. Like he is not necessarily book smart or actually intelligent, and he really doesn't show any signs of true intelligence. Sure. He got his job through nepotism, as we've already mm-hmm. established. So I also like that the song that plays after is Lady in Red, Blood. Ah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the stiffness that he has, like he's pretending like somebody's watching him feel the music, <laughs> which is great. <laughs> He's interrupted during this cassette listening by Gene and a detective, Donald Kimball, who is William, excuse me, Willem Dafoe, although his real name is William, which was devastating to wear. Is it like a SAG thing where he had to change it? I don't know. I think he just like wanted a fun stage name. And on some level, I can respect that. But also, it really, it feels, feels like a lie. Feels (laughs) like a lie, Willem. (laughs) Certainly makes a statement. When someone says Willem, you know who they're talking about. What a career, man. Mm hmm. What a guy who just does whatever the fuck he wants. Totally willing to do like these little artsy things that maybe wouldn't make a ton of money just because he thinks that they're interesting. I I was recently listening to someone talk about working with him. It wasn't Mary, but it was someone else talking about a movie that he had been in. And uh, they were talking about how he's he's really incredible in that way. And I mean, you totally see it. And, And he does so many incredible performances that for him to be like in mainstream stuff like Spider-Man and knock it out of the park as the Green Goblin. Talking about the original, I do not like the new Spider-Verse one, but uh, the original Green Goblin stuff is a lot of fun. And then to go to like to live and die in L.A. and he's playing this gay counterfeiter who's hanging dong and burning money and shit. Yeah. You're like, that fucking rules, dude. And yeah, he, I mean, he's just incredible in, in, in whatever you want to put him in. Wes Anderson will get him to just sit in a prison cell. Yeah. That's right. Silent. Right. He's like he's almost I'm, silent in Grand Budapest, right? Yeah. He has been hired by Paul's girlfriend to investigate the disappearance. And in these interview scenes, Heron shot three takes at least and requested that Defoe act differently in each one of them. First, as if he knew that Bateman was Alan's killer, and then the second that he only suspected him, and then in the third that he didn't suspect anything. And the three takes were then blended in post-production to confuse audiences, visually shifting his body language between aggressive and inquisitive, adds complexity to the fabric of the film, placing you directly in Bateman's point of view as he tries to figure out the detective's position. He's manic and paranoid. He can't decide if he's being accused or not. So instead, the audience sees an amalgamation of different tones of voice. It creates that subjectivity, again, in a way that's a lot like Synecdoche, New York, where you realize... What you're seeing might not necessarily reflect what's actually happening. Yeah, I wonder if, I mean, obviously she had him do those takes, but was open that, oh, I want to edit in between them. Yeah. Because that would be very, I feel like a, an actor would go, people are going to think that I'm a terrible actor <laughs> because I'm giving each line read completely different. So it really does add to the complexity of their dynamic. And then, 
there is a deleted scene that includes them, which I'm I'm grateful that it's not in. But by the time you get to those, I think he's with him what three times? Like yeah. there's another, and then dinner. He follows up right, and then well, lunch. They yeah, go, they go to lunch. lunch. Come on, man, get your fucking real. Well, yeah, dinner right. would be a date. That's right. <laughs> Willem said about this that the less I do, the more disconcerting it is, which I thought was correct. Yep. (laughs) And the character is actually kind of different in an interesting way in the book. Certainly, Willem brings a a je ne sais quoi to the performance, but in the book, he is more of a doppelganger for Patrick in that he is the same age and also went to Harvard. So there's a little more of a connection there. Okay. And sort of the idea that this is not limited to Wall Street, that this this Patrick Bateman could truly be anywhere, could be a, a cop, could be a detective. It's just by chance that Patrick wound up here. Okay. Because there is something to Kimball kind of liking Bateman and maybe making excuses to be around him. Yeah. And then especially if he's older, like I'm trying to be hip and I'm trying to show off this Huey Lewis record and also just being so goddamn frank with the investigation. Right. But I think that also, I think, does work if he is the same age and he's just like, oh, well, we're peers in this way now. And so I yeah. will share with you extra information or, you know, oh, we're buds where we could go and get lunch together sometime. We don't have to just fucking bullshit in your office. Yeah. The deleted scene is at a club. Mm-hmm. He it's almost like he followed him there. It's the one where him and Bryce meet up with the models and they meet at the bar. And he even says something like. Sometimes it's nice to catch people outside and, and when their guard is down or something. Right. I think that's where, is it where the head nod meme comes from? Because this movie gets like infinitely memed now, like we were talking about with Vampire's Kiss. But I think there's like a meme of Bateman just like constantly nodding, like while he's like chatting with uh, Defoe. Right. Yes. yes I think yes. that comes from that deleted scene. There is also more of this mistaken identity stuff coming into play here when they say someone actually did see Paul or thought they did in London, but they can't get verification. And he does make an excuse about having to go to lunch with Cliff Huxtable, which is very funny. And this is the second time that someone has been like, that excuse doesn't make any sense because that place is so far away. Yeah. (laughs) It's very clear. And again, just sort of that sloppiness that sort of persists through Patrick's entire being that like that just that make a better excuse idiot like pick something close <laughs> i have a work meeting right in this office of business <laughs> just go hop on the elevator and go up a floor dude like <laughs> the idea of doing work is so foreign to him that he can't even pull that as a possible excuse <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it yeah he does pick up a sex worker in the meatpacking district which that's a grim sentence to start with but the like meatpacking, you know, obviously the idea of him treating people as objects and, and chopping them up and everything. And the actual framing of her like leaning in and taking the money and it's shot incredibly well. Mary said this framing was set up to give it kind of a deal with the devil feeling. And I think that yeah. totally comes through this poor lady. Oh, yes. He also orders an escort as Paul Allen. And in this conversation between the three of them, there's a lot of really great silences that I think say more than any words. You know, the room is anxiety-inducing on its own. He's incredibly intense. And we're also tense because there's some cool Hitchcock influence here where they're doing a lot of shooting from behind his head so that you see him there, but you can't see what he's doing or how he's reacting, and it creates this unknown variable that, that makes you feel uncomfortable. Yeah. Mary said, this is a funny quote, I'm very interested in awkward sex. <laughs> 
<laughs> she said, prostitution is usually portrayed as very hot sex in movies, but it's a job for them. Usually one that's not their first choice either. And the sex scene got them an X. And in a Guardian article, Haran said, they said it was just the overall tone of the scene. It was disturbing because it's deliberately unerotic. He's just looking at himself in a mirror, having his whole fantasy, which slight digression from the quote is more how the book frames it since we're in his head. Yeah. And back in the quote, and the girls look kind of bored. I thought this was more realistic. And then she paused inside. It said, continuing with, it always comes down to taking out a few seconds of pelvic grinding. (laughs) Yeah. I think somebody at the MPA is just scrubbing and getting to the scenes they want to look at and losing a lot of context. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's like, there's nothing sexy about this movie. So, no, there's a very funny line here, though, where he says, don't just stare at it, eat it. Yep. <laughs> but then, I mean, it's it's so incredibly well. You know, we've talked a little bit about the surrealism of the editing for that Willem Dafoe scene, but it is also extrapolated to the movie at large between the wild shifts in tone, which was extremely deliberate to have these moments that are funny fucking around with his uh, his camera and pointing at himself in the mirror and everything. And then it's contrasted by the departure after he clearly beat the crap out of them. And this constant shifting of emotion create, creates an unlevel field for you to stand on. You know, you're not yeah. sure how you're supposed to feel. And it's very effective. A lot of things try it. And this is one of the few movies that I think executes it perfectly where I laugh at it and then immediately feel guilty immediately feel gross and then two seconds later i'm laughing again so by the end of it i'm just relieved that okay let me let me go back to my bland life (laughs) patrick is having a great time with the boys they're being misogynistic he's misattributing quotes to ed gein but when he sees lewis's fancy new business card his day is fucking ruined he follows lewis into the bathroom to kill him but this is the aforementioned mistaking it for a come on so he's got to go return some videotapes, he screams before leaving. Although he not washes his, his gloves yeah. Yeah, with the gloves still on. <laughs> yes, that's really funny. Detective Kimball is back. He's checking up on Patrick again. It's so funny when Patrick immediately crumbles under the slightest pushback on what he was doing. <laughs> that swinging back and forth, like I said, is very visible here in these moments. That is something that is from the book as well. And I think that the book does also accomplish it in an effective way. So, you know, that is something that was deliberately taken from it. I think that they are executing it really well here. But I do also want to give some credit to the book and that that is coming from there. Would you say it's more satisfying in a narrower way? I would say that, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Courtney is very sad. And she's, you know, besides, I mean, like the homeless man doesn't really get He's not like a real character. He's just like a kind of a prop in this movie. But as far as fleshed out characters go, Courtney is devastating because she clearly has a whole interior life that Patrick refuses to see. You know, he doesn't even notice that she's smoking, which is an addiction, (laughs) something (laughs) that you do frequently. (laughs) So he has no concept of what's going on with her. The fact that she is so torn up inside that she has to medicate herself to catatonia that she is dating someone who is interested in men and not women, you know, that she's living this shell of a relationship. She's cheating on it with Patrick. Uh, She, like, at one point here, like, grabs for a stuffed kitten for, like, a small measure of comfort. 
She is really, yeah. I think, a, a pretty tragic character. And yeah, and also there's maybe some femininity that she's trying to let out and expose that she can't. Mm-hmm. You know, she drops in the cab ride like, "I just want a child, two perfect children." But before that, she says, "Oh, I went to the pottery barn and got this. Like, I got this." unimportant material thing and i would like to maybe have this and every time i the same way patrick is dropping hints that hey i'm a killer and nobody connects to it that she's trying to reach out for these other things and because of her relationships she's restricted yeah so i totally agree with you yeah she's i think she's the most i mean aside from the people that are literally murdered the (laughs) like most tragic fleshed out character so good call this then cuts to him and Justin Thoreau talking about his roid rage and catching dyslexia through sex as they do coke in the bathroom again, really swinging back and forth mm-hmm. in a way that is very effective. But I mean, yeah, like you said, you know, you laugh about this stuff right after being like, wow, that is like a tragic character. Oh, wait, I'm laughing at him freaking out in the bathroom of this club. Was nobody having a dookie in this? <laughs> like what? Like, how does this work? Hey, like, man, you know, when you're going to that club. You ain't dookieing in there. <laughs> okay. That's such a bummer, man. <laughs> Leave the dukes at home. You eat a $500. I, I guess if you're only eating, you know, two <laughs> ounces of steak. Yeah. You know, and some herb French fries. Maybe you're not going bouncing in a full stomach, but. They're not regular even. Yeah. <laughs> he is talking to a woman at the club and we get the famous murders and executions line. But I also really love the performance leading up to that line. Where he tells her to ask him a question, and she says, so what do you do? And then she, like, rolls her eyes to her friends, like, can you fucking believe this guy? (laughs) Like, the shallow small talk is bullshit, and we all know that, but that's just what you do, so that's what you do, baby. Guinevere said, I can't remember if she said that she wasn't an actress, or was, like, super fresh, Mm -hmm. that she had the toughest time of any actor. Hmm. And they just told her to, like, just go with it. So a lot of her stiltedness is genuinely her being nervous in her line reads. That's interesting to me. Because the character feels like the one who's most aware in the movie of, like, how they're all just playing roles. It feels like she's aware of the the comedy of manners that I was talking about where she's, like, she doesn't mind that, that he thinks she's dumb. She says, like, that's just we're playing the parts. So where do you work out? Like, that. That's the like key. Oh, I'm I'm into you. All right. Yeah. Unfortunately, he has presumably killed her when the next day he's toying with a lock of her blonde hair and writing meat and bone for every clue in the crossword. He's interrupted by Jean, however, and he invites her to dinner, though the facade almost breaks when she says she wants to go to Dorsha. And I love the way that she shot like a little closer than he is. It's like a little more warm when they're shooting her as opposed to him. Yeah. Very odd framing on him. On this couch mm-hmm. that is so uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. A, a disconnect. There's a barrier between us and him for sure. Yeah. And he calls and the guy says they're totally booked, but he acts like he heard what he wanted to hear, which is very funny because it's kind of more of a trick to get her over to his place. Although he doesn't salt her dressing again. This guy's much nicer about it. The previous <laughs> guy laughed at him. I'm guessing that guy lost his job after laughing at every person that called to make a reservation well what else has happened to the people who've laughed at patrick so far oh shit (laughs) i don't know if he made it to work the next day let's say (laughs) this date is different in the book because she doesn't come over to his place which i think is a pretty significant digression there's a head in his freezer (laughs) he says that he's on a diet because 
quote, you can always be thinner, look better. And I think that this is also a very telling line because he can't get any validation out of these things. So he assumes that he just hasn't hit the threshold, that eventually he will be thin enough and he will be fit enough and he'll get some feeling of worth out of those things. Yeah. Which, spoiler alert, you have to have a rich interior life, make connections with people. That's what it's all about, not being the thinnest person on earth or whatever. She does give him a little validation, though. She does give him, she's like, I think maybe the only person to give him a compliment, aside from Lewis, but like, you look great, you know? Does that add to his reluctantness coming up? Mm, could be. He does fiddle with some murder toys while he's talking with her, but he isn't really listening because she does tell him the trick. Fulfillment comes from change and growth. Stagnation is death. Keep moving to survive. I'm a shark, by the way. Hell yeah. And one thing I love in this movie that I don't think really gets talked about a lot is that nobody knows who any of the serial killers that he references are, which is just like, that's like a refreshing part of this world to me. (laughs) It's like, like, oh, there was no true crime proliferation and nobody knows who these people are. (laughs) Yeah. Not a new eight part series on Netflix every week about some lady who killed a kid. Right. It could be a half hour dateline Netflix. We don't need (laughs) eight hours. I uh, completely agree. He can't quite pull the trigger on the nail gun he's holding, though, behind her oblivious head, and they're interrupted by a message from Evelyn. Uh, They come to their senses, and he says that he thinks she should go so that she doesn't get hurt, although she thinks he means emotionally, so she reverts to being secretary mode. She says, don't forget you have lunch tomorrow with Detective Kimball. So he goes and has lunch tomorrow with Detective (laughs) Kimball, and he, he says Marcus Halstrom's alibi checks out, which is that he was with Patrick. And so the alibi and mistaken identities work out in his favor here. That night, he goes to pick up Christy, who is the sex worker from before, picks her up again in his limo, which Mary said is like the chariot of death, in her opinion. The line that really just like made made me upset, really, it's like a gut punch line, is when he says, the driver's here, you'll be safe. It'll be nothing like last time. And just the idea that someone else's presence is the only thing keeping him in line here is terrifying and the fact that because there is the economic pressure and power differential between the two of them that's it that who knows if that actually would even keep them safe yeah i mean just how awful it is that she obviously knows what he did but he can just keep pulling out dollar after dollar and she has to succumb to that is an absolute bummer yeah for real she is forced into it by her economic situation yeah he takes her to paul allen's apartment and he drugs the wine and the other woman there elizabeth is played by the co-writer of the movie guinevere turner yep i loved this moment where mary was like we wanted her to feel like she was coming from an entirely different movie (laughs) she was just like in a comedy for real in these moments i guess she digs sarah lawrence here because the writer actually went to sarah lawrence (laughs) and was like this is a girl that like you know, eight out of 10 women at Sarah Lawrence are like this that I had to deal with. (laughs) So she was pulling from that. I also think it's interesting, though, that this character does kind of demonstrate the narcissism of not just Patrick, but the whole boys club, because they were not 30 minutes ago talking about how the only smart girls are the ugly ones. But here is this woman who is, frankly, a babe and clearly confident and comfortable being at the top of the game in the business world as well, right there with the boys. Mm hmm. They all have sex, and Christy was already in the process of sneaking the hell out of there when suddenly Elizabeth has been chomped on by Patrick. That's a frightening moment. (laughs) Pretty brutal. Yeah. Yeah. 
She runs, but it's a maze of doors. She opens the first, and it's a closet with some hanging corpses in there. Very, very funny to me that they did a jump scare on Mary from In the Bags when she went to check on how it looked before shooting. Oh, really? <laughs> it just, like, jumped out at her. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's funny. Good job, guys. She finds another room with bodies and die yuppie scum written on the walls. Uh, very helter-skelter feeling. Yeah. And she's chased by a nude Patrick wielding a chainsaw, much like Leatherface, who we saw while Patrick had Texas Chainsaw Massacre on while he was working out. We've already talked about how he is reflective of the things he sees, and it's easy to see how a powerful image like Leatherface chasing uh, uh, the the final girl at the end. I, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting her name, but yeah, uh, the the girl at the end of Texas Chainsaw who survives. I mean, is so powerful because she truly feels hysterical at the end of that movie. Like she is screaming, and the screaming turns to laughter as she gets in the car and drives away and everything, and uh, it's just such a, a feeling of intensity in that movie, and you literally come in on the moment where she's getting chased by Leatherface when we're watching it. It's easy to see how that might infiltrate his imagination, and he might have these fantasies about killing someone with a chainsaw. Yeah. Did he place the order at Sears for that <laughs> chainsaw, you know, immediately after returning that videotape? Right. I never realized that Elizabeth's character, is it Christy? She's running through, she runs back through the apartment and slips in the bathroom. Mm -hmm. That is Elizabeth's body. Oh. And Guinevere talked about like having to lay on that cold floor naked (sighs) for continuity and it was brutal. But I never realized that she obviously crawls from the bed to the bathroom. Yeah, me neither. I just thought that that was another body in there. Yeah. Wow. That's intense. (laughs) Another thing she talked about, too, was the conscious decision to hold back on any sort of true slasher chase elements until this point, because it makes this one so much more powerful. You've gone through, if you're 17-year-old Bones, like, this is kind of boring. And then you get to this, and it is, I mean, it's peak slasher chase, right? Yeah. Running and screaming through an apartment building conceivably full of people that are not opening their doors. Yeah. Very terrifying. Yeah. Kitty Genovese up in here. It's also, I mean, we've talked about how it is balancing these humor and horror elements. It's certainly darkly comic as Patrick is running around in the fucking buff. Like he's just got his fucking tennis shoes on or whatever. His little sneakers down there. So he stopped to put his trainers on. (laughs) You don't want to fuck up and get hurt. I guess. Safety is number one. And, uh, you know, he, he does this sick drop of the chainsaw to catch her on the stairs. Mary definitely wanted us to feel her death, to have really liked Christy and to have wanted her to get away. And we definitely do. I think that the fact that you're like, oh, come on, he fucking pulled that off after all this sloppy shit. He manages to perfectly time the chainsaw drop. Come on, Christy, get out of there. And yeah, it's, it's a very impactful scene. I, I think it's really fantastic. And of course... There is some interesting subversion of typical horror dumb where it's the man who's nude and running around instead of the woman who is being chased. Yeah, especially as we get to, you know, the ATM sequence and the heightened reality that that builds to. You also have to go back and question how all of these murders, did they really play out this way? Mm -hmm. Did he really drop that chainsaw or if he's telling the story, is that what he says? Is that what he imagined happened? Did he happen to actually catch her and get it in the back mm-hmm. via a drop or just run up next to her and do it? Mm-hmm. You know, did he did he really bite Elizabeth that way? Did he 
if you succumb to, yes, he did kill these people, but did he kill them in such this grandeur, mm-hmm. as I think is an interesting way to look at it. Not to keep going back to Synecdoche, but I... It's on the brain, bro. It's on my brain. And the same kind of thing where it's like you see him sort of raging against his wife and how they like abscond with their daughter to Germany and everything. And, and she gets sort of groomed by his ex-wife's lesbian partner. And like there's a, a lot of the movie where you're like, how much of this is just his idea of what these people are? Yeah. Like we've we see other characters relate to them in a much more normal way than if this person was like a malicious shit stirrer the way that he is portraying them to be. And that certainly that comes across here where you're like, you can kind of lay the spectrum of subjectivity out and sort of decide where you want to fall on the reality of what you're seeing or not. Yeah. The unreliable narrator. Mm hmm. If Morgan Freeman was reading this, would it be as extreme? Oh, reliable right. as fuck, baby. <laughs> <laughs> he draws this like scene on the table of a restaurant that he's in with Evelyn the next day. And, you know, I talked about how the restaurants get more and more surreal. But one thing that really like I was like, what the fuck is happening is that they are always going to these very fancy restaurants but this restaurant has a paper cloth and crayons for him to draw with. I think they reference crayons as a restaurant in one of the interrogations or in one of like the receptionist. Oh, my God. Saying something. They actually they drop the name crayons as a restaurant. Oh, my God. All right. It all comes together. Yeah. I'm glad you caught that. I just went on about people emulating this movie and like connecting to whatever. <laughs> I'll drop the city. So uh, in Springfield, Missouri, there is this like, it's not Olive Garden, but it is a big, giant, Midwestern Italian restaurant. And they have the paper cloth. Mm-hmm. Like they roll a roll with every table and they give you some crayons wow. and the kids have the little like maze cards like you get from Denny's or whatever, sure, sure. but they allow adults to like draw shit. That's fine. And you better believe a 20 year old bones thought it was funny to draw the chainsaw <laughs> in the back lady. Oh, God. <laughs> Look, it was, it, it was a long time ago. <laughs> I have different cells now. Yes. I, I've become so obsessed with the, uh, Sorry, I'm going to sidetrack. Have you heard any of Tarantino's podcast, Video Archives? No, been I checking haven't. That out? I, I, uh, I, I've been hearing good things about it, but I haven't actually checked it out myself. I popped in to listen to their take on Moonraker, and Roger Avery goes 15 minutes on cells mm-hmm. about how every seven years, you, you're a new person because of your cells. So mm-hmm. like 21 years, I'm three different people. And I've liked Moonraker a different way each time I've watched it. <laughs> like, so I, I've become obsessed with just telling my wife, well, I'm, I am I have different cells. Uh, look, that's the I, kind of shit that'll truly throw you into an existential crisis, my man. <laughs> like, <laughs> you start thinking about how uh, that's a completely different guy back then. Mm-hmm. What does being me even mean then at that point if I'm just going to be different again in seven years? Yeah. Like, it's like the teleportation shit where it's like, well, when you get reassembled, <laughs> look. That's not, is that you? Or do you just think you're you? Like, you remember all the shit from that other guy, but you're a different guy now, so I don't know, man. Dude, you're oh. blowing my mind here, Christopher Nolan, Hugh Jackman, <laughs> Prestige. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, man. That was my emulation of Patrick Bateman watching the Prestige. <laughs> <laughs> What's that? Isn't this like a psychological or like, not psychological, like 
metaphorical question. Like there's a ship that they reference. I think they talk about it in WandaVision. I didn't watch that. Sorry. There's some ship. Somebody's going to be like, you fucking idiot. It's called whatever. But they, it's the question of there is this ship. And then throughout the years, as you replace the boards and you replace the parts, is it truly the... Who knows? Who the yeah, fuck man. knows? <laughs> That'll send you spiraling. This for is sure. weird, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Whoa. <laughs> he tells her about his homicidal urges that can't be corrected. So it's over, Evelyn. We've lost touch. She doesn't think that a breakup would work because they share the same friends. But he says she can keep them, and she starts to weep, so he flees this display of emotions. I have to return some videotapes. I've assessed the situation, and I'm leaving. Yep. The ATM asks him to feed it a stray cat. It literally (laughs) says that on the screen. Yep. Very funny, but also he picks up a cat that's right there and pulls out a gun, and you go, oh, fuck, is he going to shoot this cat? (laughs) But he's interrupted by a lady who's like, hey, are you going to fucking shoot that cat? Yeah. So he shoots her instead, and he kills the cops that show up immediately. There's a cool bit of editing here that I thought just from like a production standpoint was fun, where he turns the corner down the alleyway, and that's like him running from New York into Toronto. Yes. That's fun. (laughs) Movie magic. If this was like the modern era, that woman would have pulled out her cell phone and Mm. just TikToked. Wow. She would have done like a TikTok dance in the background of him being like, I can't believe... This cat is being shot by the ATM. Yeah, you get that automated voice. <laughs> this psycho about to shoot a cat in front of ATM. Like <laughs> nobody would help now. Nobody would say stop that. They would say how many how many views can I get for this cat getting shot? That's hits, man. Like and subscribe if you think he should not have shot the cat. Mm-hmm. His rampage continues as he runs around town into identical looking office buildings, which of course incredible. It's incredible. They were like, it's really convenient that the Toronto Dominion Square or whatever the fuck it's called in Canada allowed us to do this because those actually are two different but almost identical looking towers that they have on either side. So it worked out pretty well in that they actually are different. But uh, but yeah, just look basically exactly the same. He runs into there. He calls his lawyer. He can he cries and he confesses to between 20 and 40 murders, eating some brains and whatnot. You know, it's interesting that we saw one instance of him looking happy. Here he is actually being sad and feeling vulnerable. You know, he says, I guess I'm a pretty sick guy. Yeah. It's full Looney Tunes mm-hmm. at that point. Yeah. The, the going in the, or he, he goes in one rotating door, shoots a guard, runs around the corner, goes through another one, realizes that, and a custodian comes <laughs> out of the elevator, runs back through, shoots him, runs out. It's like, to me, the one part of violence that I can just laugh at the whole time it is really funny i also love when you think he's gonna pull out the gun again and then it's just like the pen and he actually signs it like he was supposed to but then uh, simultaneously this also to me feels like it could be a look into reality again where we're seeing past the subjectivity that what he wanted to do was come in and shoot whoever was in there but he actually comes in and signs in and it's all in his head yeah and did the car really explode Right. Did he sh- did he shoot at some random cops? Right. Is the police helicopter actually there for him? You know, and here's where the movie does something that just can't be done with a book. And in is one of the reasons why I think it is more of a success than the book is, which is that while Carnes lawyer mistakes Patrick for someone else that left the message as a prank about Patrick, that dork, that boring, spineless, lightweight, it's intercut 
with the scene of Gene finding his calendar full of the doodles of dead women. And having these two happen simultaneously, where the walls of his psychosis kind of come crumbling down, where you have someone explicitly being like, that's not possible, and finding the doodles of these victims, where it's like, oh, this is just his fantasy, what he's been drawing in, in this, uh, this calendar. It's just really powerful. And it works in a way that just you can't have that kind of cutting back and forth in a book. Yeah. The poor art director that had to assign somebody to draw these doodles. You're walking a tightrope, right? Yeah. Like, well, okay, I need to get fucked up, but not so fucked up that people think this is actually (laughs) my doodles. Right. They look at it and they go, you're fired, actually. Yeah. (laughs) How were you somehow worse than Patrick Bateman? This is too much. (laughs) Those are actually Brady Sinellis fucking drew all that shit. Yeah, I can believe it. Yeah. You'd have to, I guess, divvy that up against a few people, right? Yeah. I also love this quote where he says, we talk on the phone all the time. Don't you recognize me? Of course, this is the culmination of the forgotten identities and and mistakes and everything. Your lawyer doesn't even know who you are. Unbelievable. And he says that he had lunch with Paul Allen two times in London a week ago and that he doesn't think this is funny anymore. Again, you're like, did he have lunch with paul allen or does he just think that he fucking did like yeah his subjectivity blending with patrick's subjectivity really just you know the shifting sands it's impossible to get a foothold in this movie in a way that is so satisfying to come back to and watch all while reagan is on tv that's right a man that we now know barely knew what the fuck was going on either. <laughs> i also really like that gene finding the doodles sort of removes the book's possibility that he and Gene will settle down, which he does say that he thinks will probably happen in the book. Oh. Because after you see that, how like how do you forgive that? How do you forget that? Probably can't, in my opinion. Or it turns her on in some weird-ass way. And, ah! Uh, you know? <laughs> could be, could be. You know what? Maybe it doesn't completely remove it. But mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I also love the sign behind Patrick says, this is not an exit. You know, there is no way out for him. He is trying... Mm-hmm to find an exit and just cannot. And he thinks inside doesn't matter. There's no way out for him. He wants to inflict his pain on others, but he can't find any catharsis. He's not getting any deeper knowledge of himself. This confession has meant nothing as it slowly zooms in on his dead eyes. Hachi machi. What a picture. Not just any picture, Bones. But we've now reached the part of the episode where we sum up why it's in fact the best horror movie ever made. Oh, man. I'm going to let you start. George, I'm a big fan of your show. Been a great supporter. I uh, was stressing over this part. I was like, shit. All right. It is infinitely rewatchable. It is a top five performance for me from Christian Bale. It rides the line of horror and comedy so well that you yourself feel bad while immediately feeling joy and then immediately back to bad. I cannot really think of anything more terrifying than a rich, bored white guy. And we know that there are plenty of them around, and I think this should be a warning to everybody. So even if you don't think this is the best horror movie ever, (laughs) please take it as a word of warning. Yeah, I think it's the best horror movie ever made because it is so both pointed and and clear about what it's doing, but also very subtle, I think, in, in unique ways as well, in that the surreality in particular does not smack you in the face in the way that a lot of movies that try to play with surrealism go haha aren't we wacky like that's yeah. that's not the feeling that this movie conjures all of the moments of surreality 
just bring you further in and make you question what you're seeing. It brings out that unreliable narrator aspect in a way that is so hard to pull off. And they do it with such aplomb here. And the stylization of it is great. You know, the fact that it is nauseatingly violent at times and bloody, but also so much of it is kind of off screen. You really get to let your imagination do a lot of the work and you are constantly bouncing back and forth between being like, oh, Patrick, don't do that. I want you to get away. I want you to stop this. But then also seeing how deranged he is and seeing how violent this guy is and and having to be like, am I falling for the trap? Is the aesthetic winning on me? Like, am I doing the exact thing that this movie is talking about and letting the surface look sort of paper over the interiority of psychosis? Um, look, we went a really long time without talking about Trump on this fucking yes. podcast. <laughs> but, but God damn it, man. This fucking guy, he is so sociopathic and so willing to do whatever it takes to maintain his image that it is even if Patrick were not explicitly like trying to emulate Trump at points several years before his presidential run and everything back when he was just a greedy businessman, you would still immediately draw the connections. There would be no way to avoid it. And there's just so much interesting stuff going on in terms of its critique of American excess and like I said, I thought that that Canadian stuff that was going on in terms of the like cultural identity, I thought it was interesting, even if it wasn't intended, you know, maybe that's just a little bit, a little piece of the death of the author that does come through in terms of like, even if they didn't intend it, it kind of does represent some of this, uh, this idea. And, and the performances incredible. I've already talked about Chloe Sevigny's natural performance compared to Christian Bale's performance, but they are both, I think, doing such a spectacular job. His is obviously the flashier role, and yep. he does he does do a great job with it. But there's no denying that it's a flashy. Like he's the star of the movie. He's in. Probably, he's got to be in every scene, right? Yeah, except the scene where she's looking through the book. I yeah. mean, but it's intercut, so yeah. And for her to be able to sort of provide a grounded balance to the scenes that she's in with him, and create a little bit of a person for us to latch onto and to feel a tiny bit of humanism in the movie. I think is really important and and she doesn't get shouted out that much in in discussions of this movie and i think that that is a crime because she is fantastic in it it's it's just great performances all the way down reese witherspoon is also very fun in it and and this is a very silly performance for her so i i hope she got to have fun with it because yeah. uh it, it's a good one damn it it's just the best horror movie ever made oh man you took the brunt of that one i said it's <laughs> You can rewatch it a lot, and the acting is good. And you just, <laughs> hey man, that's what thanks, I'm here dude. For. That's what yeah. I'm here for. All I, t- I told myself, I was like, just be short. Don't <laughs> fucking run off with it and trip over yourself. Yeah, I mean the Trump connection for sure. I mean the the things in this where, oh, I'm gonna quote this food critic. Or I'm going to just repeat what this music critic said. I mean, we know that that's what Trump did. Trump just said in a press conference what the last aide told him to say, you know. I also, sorry, not to jump back in here, but just like, uh, not even with Trump, but just like the way that people like read media and just like regurgitate opinions without like so many people 
form their opinions based on not watching the thing. Half of a headline. <laughs> Just yeah. saying, I know what this is like. And there's no denying that I have been guilty of this in the past. I'm sure I will be guilty of this in the future. But trying to be cognizant of it and not do that, I think, is very important. And this, the vapidity of Patrick Bateman is is has persisted to today. <laughs> there is no doubt. And with the internet being more and more accessible, it's never been easier to have more opinions thrown at you and uh, sensory overload. You know, it's 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 I'm not saying that it's people's fault that this happens, but I mean, it's just it's frustrating. It's frustrating to have people be like, oh, this sucks because of this thing. You're like, well, did you watch it? And they go, no, I didn't watch it because, well, that's actually handled in the context of the movie. It's handled in a way that it's clearly satire and it's not supposed to be. I encourage violence against women in American Psycho or something like that. And yeah, I think that the it's it's kind of ironic that it uh, almost sees the criticisms of the movie and puts it as a negative aspect of character in its anti-hero. Yeah, there I've seen a lot of Twitter traffic recently about I might get this phrase wrong like depiction is not um encouragement, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, putting stuff into art like representing things is not um uh, you're not condoning it in any way. Right. And I think this is a, an incredible example to point to. Like, this is not... I don't love this movie because I love the character. I I love the character representation and portrayal. Mm-hmm. And I love what the story shows, what it reflects. Like, it could be a... You could look at it on a micro level of, oh, it's a de- satire of 80s culture. But it's ultimately a satire of current culture yeah. just in a different setting uh, yeah so I, I i think that's an important thing too because sometimes i think and another reason why i'm not a huge horror fan is sometimes it gets lost in the fold there is sort of like oh man the kills are fucking great and it's like okay okay but be careful who you say that to <laughs> right like we're we want to keep making horror movies but like there's i don't know so it, it says a lot to me in this movie that when they approached it, they knew how to shoot it, how to show it in a way that puts it on you, the viewer. And we don't do that enough. I don't think. And I think that that's part of why diversity is so important because the fact that there are women in every aspect of this movie, director, writer, they were talking in the commentary about how much of the crew was also women. You get these perspectives and they're able to adapt the material in a way that shifts it away from someone who is explicitly misogynistic. Like mm-hmm. Brett Easton Ellis is in interviews being like, I don't think women directors are good. And there are occasional times where they will make a good movie, but by and large there, <laughs> he literally said women aren't turned on visually. And so men get the visual language better, and and that's why. And it's just so fucking stupid. (laughs) Like, it is truly just, like, the dumbest shit. And for them to take this material and really bring it to a level that imbues it with their experience, that's why these different viewpoints are important to have making movies. Yeah. Even the dumbest person who doesn't pay attention to the credits, what what does that also matter? Like, I didn't care that this was written and directed by a team of women and did all of that. I enjoy the product mm-hmm. that comes through to whether you know it or not. And th- I think that that's why it's crucial. Oh yeah. I a hundred percent agree with you. I'm just thinking of like the idiot person that it 
any sort of like, uh, well, don't force the diversity or whatever. Like you, if you're so dumb that you have to think that it, that forcing it somehow is going to ruin it. Let me point to all of these examples where you didn't even realize that that's who did it for you. You know, and they talked so many times about how unfilmable this book was and how there was so many drafts about it and that no one could crack it until someone with a different viewpoint was able to come in and, and change yep. it a little bit. It's a really great representation of, of, of what new voices can bring to a work of art. And I really hope that people stayed for the long haul in this one because we went on three full tangents within our best <laughs> ever summary. <laughs> so. So you earned it, Bones. You earned your plug time, and and I'm going to let you take a crack at that right now. Tell people where they can find you, where they can listen to you. Please listen to the Five Day Rentals podcast. Started over the pandemic with two of the funniest people I know. It's a category watch-along podcast. One of us picks a ridiculous category. We pick three movies that we think fit that. We do sort of a play-by-play. We try to riff as much as we can. We try to make an, an effort to watch stuff that is fresh as much as we would like to talk about Die Hard and Terminator 2. <laughs> you know, you can get that a lot of other places. So definitely. There's and a, I also want to jump in and say that I love the categories you guys do because it does create a, a totally different pool of movies to pick from because it's not just like, all right, let's do an action movie podcast. All right, let's do a horror movie podcast. You're not working with genre necessarily you're working with these categories that can sort of silo things in a different way. And it lets you cover some really cool stuff. I think the show is great. And you guys, yeah, everyone is very funny on the show. Thank you. We know that there's a lot of podcasts out there. So if we get one person from this, (laughs) it's a success. I encourage you all to check it out. And there is, like we said, uh, an episode about Mad God featuring yours truly. So if you're looking for a place to start, hey, why not? Absolutely. You were very gracious to give us your time and explain the movie to us <laughs> hey my pleasure <laughs> truly my pleasure and and explaining feels very generous <laughs> it was a lot of fun i had a great time on the show and i definitely want people to check it out you, you guys have a social media platforms right uh yeah you can find us on twitter discord also usual places i think dance he runs the uh, instagram so we're out there what's the handle five day rentals pod perfect yep as far as my plugs you can find me on twitter at little horror phl that username applies pretty much everywhere including patreon and if, if you're enjoying the show for just a couple bucks a month you can you can get all kinds of great bonus episodes including you guessed it one about synecdoche new york what <laughs> that's right folks i don't know if you could tell from the very subtle hints that i watched it recently but i did a long episode about synecdoche new york and the subjectivity of it with michael swaim from cracked fame among many other things very very funny guy he did the antichrist episode on the main feed so if you like that you'll definitely want to check that out we had a really awesome time and that is a really great movie and uh, like i said a lot of it kind of plays interestingly with this one so uh definitely check that out if you're into american psycho what else i mean mike mitchell was just on there again to talk about blob 1998 that was a lot of fun clay tatum was just on to talk about pt from silent hills the playable teaser Uh, that just turned eight years old recently so if you're mourning the loss all over again check out (laughs) check out that episode (laughs) i i hope people check out the patreon because uh i mean i was like i was looking at how much time it took me to like do research and stuff for the synecdoche episode which had like 18 pages of notes and it's I'm like truly doing like, if not a full time job, at least like enough of a, a part time job that like I would be considered the reliable one. 
<laughs> I'm getting in there frequently. So I'm putting in a lot of work. And if you are enjoying the show, it's just it's just five bucks a month for bonus episodes. Check them out, people. And you, and you get to come on our Discord. We have a fun Discord there. That's We, we chat about movies and, and all kinds of fun stuff. There's a fun meme channel and everything. <laughs> so, all right. All kinds of great stuff. Rate and review if you're enjoying the show because it does help. And uh, tell a friend. If you don't want to sign up for the Patreon, tell a friend about the show. Say, hey, I like this episode. Bones was very funny on it. Great uh, great movie. Check it out. <laughs> oh, you're too nice. Too nice. Tell one person. And uh, and then and then uh, all of you will go listen to Five Day Rentals, and, and soon will be the number one and two most popular shows in the world. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> That's how you're, it works, you're right? Mike, yeah, you'll be Rogan to Mike Conan. How about that? <laughs> We're all just trying to make it work out here. Just our, our two our two little independent shows trying to make it in the face of first podcast ever. Conan O'Brien needs a friend. <laughs> so. yeah. Bubbles got to pop soon, buddy. I think <laughs> the the million point five podcasts that started, you know, I think they're going to all those true crime podcasts are going to start canceling themselves out and people get back into the world. We'll see. We'll see. Hopefully. So, uh, yeah. yeah, there you go. Lots of plugs today, but uh, go do all that stuff. That's it. Thanks again, Bones. Thanks, George. Bye.